Good morning. Well, as you can tell, this is the last on the series Hope and Change with a focus these last several weeks on the hope of heaven. And the next series, Lord willing, will be on First and Second Thessalonians. I, I need to apologize to Derek, by the way. He had practiced another text and I pulled a switcheroo on him. And if you can imagine having that length thrown at you without a chance to rehearse, those are nightmares. But he did exceedingly well. All right. Let's, let's uh, think about this last message. And, uh, and I think as we do, we need to keep in mind a couple of texts. First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, you remember, as a quote from the Old Testament that says, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. These are incredible things that we are speaking about. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, they are, they are thoughts and ideas that are beyond words. They are indescribable in human words. And, and so these are incredible things that we're dealing with. And these last chapters of our Bible uh, give us a picture of what the new heavens and the new earth will look like. And uh, I should point out, too, that in uh, chapters 21 and 22, there's a fairly clear break. Uh, and you see the difference between earlier periods in these last days. You see before chapter 21 that there is a temple that is referred to. You see that there is death that is spoken of. There is a sea that is uh, spoken of. All of those things change in Revelation chapter 21, where the new heavens and the new earth come down to earth, and that is the period, that is the, the, the element that we are focusing on this morning. There are, um, of course, many other things in the book of Revelation. And I have to tell you, I, I've, I've read Revelation a number of times, I've taught through Revelation, and, and I still, when I read through Revelation, my eyeballs just roll. I wish I could say to you that I have a nice, clear picture but, but I think maybe one of the reasons that Revelation is written that way is that we ought to get the main points. We ought to get the, the big picture. And as somebody said, Jesus wins isn't bad. Uh, that's really what it's all about. And I suspect that for those who are living in a particular period that is described in Revelation, they will look at that text at that moment in time and say, aha, that's what he was writing about. Uh, we will talk about some things that are mentioned in other parts of Revelation because I think they do give us a picture of heaven in terms of the heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. I want to approach this lesson by just asking a few questions and seeking to answer them from our text. Who will be there and who won't? What is heaven like? What will the saints be doing in heaven? What does Revelation confirm that we have found from other passages in the Scriptures? And what's the unique contribution of the book of Revelation to our study of heaven? And then finally, some applicational thoughts. So let's go to the first question, heaven. Who will be there and who won't? Obviously, God will be there. <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be present in heaven, 
And I was thinking of that text in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, where it says, We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. When you look at Exodus chapter 33, Moses got a pretty good view of God from the backside, but he didn't see it all. What we're going to see when we get to heaven is we're going to see God face to face in all of his glory. And so you have God the Father who is described as being there, God the Son who I think is probably the star of the show in the book of Revelation, and then the Holy Spirit. Now, here's something kind of interesting. The expression Holy Spirit is never used in the book of Revelation. I'm not sure why, but if you looked up that term, Holy Spirit, you would not find it in the book of Revelation, at least not in the the New American Standard translation. You have in the Spirit used four times. That's when when, uh, John is talking about him being, I think, under the influence of the Spirit and seeing the revelation that that, uh, God is, is giving. And then you have the word spirit used nine times. And what I didn't put in your notes is the expression seven spirits. Four times in the first five chapters, it talks about the seven spirits. I wish I understood all that, folks. I'm just telling you that's the way it is. The Holy Spirit's going to be there too. There are the saints, and I think there is a special honor that is given to those who are the martyrs. Uh, who have died for their faith in the Lord Jesus, many of them in the Great Tribulation. There are the angels. 74 times in the book of Revelation, 25% of all the references to angels in the Bible are found in Revelation. Lots of angels there, and I think we would probably expect that. There are the elders. Uh, They occur 12 times. The apostles uh, are also uh, mentioned there. And then the four living creatures. Doesn't that just kind of bend your mind? I think that there's a tendency, at least in my mind, to think of heaven in terms of me and and all my fellow human beings that are saved, and then the angels, uh, and and pretty much in God, and and that's it. But you have these four living creatures that, that are obviously beyond our dimension. And when I read, for instance, in texts like Ephesians chapter 3, where it talks about God giving this mystery to Paul that he's been playing out and now uh, to, to make known the mystery of the Jews and Gentiles being brought together in one body in the church. And he says, in effect, so that all the celestial powers uh, it, it will, will see this and behold this. And I think we all know that there's some kind of an angelic celestial audience, but somehow in my mind, those four creatures just didn't have chairs in the auditorium that I was thinking about. And it almost gives you that Narnia feel, does it not? Where, you know, you're just saying, wow, there are these other things. Hey, you know, God has... Perhaps he may have creatures that we are not aware of. I'm not going to go down that trail very hard, but they're obviously here in the book of Revelation. But I have to say this. We're not the only people who will be in heaven, but we are the only bride. And, and, and the beauty of it is that when we are gathered together and assembled before God, we are going to be his bride and the, the object of his great affection uh, and love. Who won't be there? 
Well, the wicked, as you see in those texts in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. Now, I may have overstated a point when I talked about the separation of the wicked from God. And, and you get that clear impression from texts like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, away from the presence of God. R.C. Sproul, in, in a book I was reading this week, makes the point that if God is omnipresent, and, and remember uh, it, when, when the psalmist says, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there, then I think you have to say that there's really nowhere that God is not somehow present. I think what you have to say is he is not present in the sense that he is with his saints. And in fact, when you look at the punishment of the wicked, it, it actually describes them as being punished in the presence uh, of the angels and of the Lord. And when you look at the uh, description of, of the, uh, uh, the abode of those who were unbelievers in Revelation chapter 22, it describes them as being outside, outside the city. So when I look at a text like Luke 16, uh, where you've got the rich man and Lazarus, and, and uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, it appears to me that you can actually sort of see the other side. Uh, not really have contact, not pass from one to the other, but see it. And in a sense, that would make, that, that would, that seems reasonable to me, that those who are in, suffering in hell can actually see the delight, as it were, of those saints who are in heaven in the presence of our Lord. What is heaven like? Well, the thing I did not say, and I wish I had said then, but at least have a chance to say it now, is when I talked about heaven coming down in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, in God incarnate, dwelling amongst men, it really did not occur to me to say at that point, I guess I should say I forgot to say at that point, that Jesus is really the prototype of what heaven is going to be like. Now, we see in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 that he is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1, verse 14, he tabernacled amongst us. John chapter 2, he speaks, Jesus speaks of himself as being the temple. So there are those indications that our Lord Jesus is certainly God dwelling amongst men. And that, of course, is what heaven is about. And we see that in our Lord Jesus Christ, the attributes of God are all displayed uh, through the humanity of our Lord. So that Jesus can say in John chapter 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. But think about the miracles. I guess that's, that's, that's the thought that, that I had passed by that I should have mentioned back in, in that message. His miracles are sort of a, a snapshot of the things that are going to happen and the way it's going to be in heaven. So when you think about the turning of the water into wine, you see our Lord Jesus taking some, something that's certainly of lesser value and converting it into greater value. Now, it depends upon how you view the new heavens and the new earth. And, and there are those that argue that new there doesn't mean entirely new. It means more renewed sort of like your your car was in an accident and and only it would be better in this scenario better than the way it went into the shop but something that god has reworked so in second peter when it talks about the earth being dealt with in fervent heat 
uh, it may be that there's some kind of renewal. Our Lord Jesus is able to take that which is lesser and make that which is greater. That may be stretching it a bit, but the water to wine is, a, is at least an evidence of our Lord's power over nature, as is the calming of the storm. And the disciples looking at each other and saying, Who is this? But there will be absolutely, of course, control over all of nature uh, in, in the kingdom of God. Our Lord's travel in the darkness. Remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus has waited on purpose to go and to be with, with uh, Mary and Martha because Lazarus has died, and, and, and the disciples are saying to him, Lord, they want to kill us. And, and he says, in effect, well, men normally travel in the daylight. But the inference is he doesn't have to do that. He can travel at night because day and night does not matter. He is the light. And so, therefore, he may travel at night when other people are in bed. Uh, he is the light in the darkness. The casting out of demons is certainly a prototype of the defeat of Satan that we're going to see that takes place just before the new heavens and the earth. The uh, the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead. There will be no sickness. There will be no pain and sorrow. So what Jesus did was a sample of that which is going to come. And, of course, the transfiguration of our Lord is one more example of what heaven is like when you see him and his radiance and his glory. That's a bit of a foreshadow of what you see, for instance, in Revelation uh, chapter 1. What heaven is like. Heaven is like God. Have, have you ever gone to somebody's house uh, and, and, uh, and, and looked at their house and, and you say, that is just you. Sometimes we say that about the way people dress. Somehow that's just them. When we get to heaven, it's going to be just God. It's so God-like, I think, in these ways. Uh, think about glory. I, I had to start in my mind at Exodus chapter 33 where Moses says to God, Show me thy glory. And you remember in chapter 34, he gets a pretty good view, certainly beyond anything that uh, anyone else had seen to that point. And you see the glory of God proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. In John 17, our Lord speaks about showing his glory to his disciples, those who have followed him, uh, the glory that he had uh, when he was with the Father in heaven. And, and then in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23, it says, And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So here the glory of God is such a bright radiance, <laughs> you don't need any other light. So it's a glorious place. It's a holy place. Uh, again, in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, 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 and Isaiah chapter 57. But look in uh, chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. It's a holy place. So that uncleanness is, is, is out of the picture. Um, and, and remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, these mortal bodies... 
cannot enter into the presence of God. That's why we have transformed bodies when we come into the presence of God. Righteousness. Now, this one I think we, we need to reflect on a, a bit more. But you remember in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 10, Paul is talking about the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to those who are suffering for their faith, and he speaks about the reward that's going to come for them, for their perseverance and endurance. But then he says also, it is right that when he comes, he is going to bring judgment upon those who have afflicted you. And there is a sense, my friend, there is a sense. And I don't think because we've never been down that trail. We've, you and I, have never been martyrs. And we have never suffered the intense cruelty that some people have and many more people will endure in the future when their faith becomes the occasion for great oppression and and cruelty and martyrdom then the righteousness of God will be evidenced in, in, in that. And so you have the saints in, in uh, Revelation 7 crying out to God, how long, how long will it be before you, in effect, come to deal with this? Revelation chapter 16 talks about the angel in verse 2 going out, pouring out his bowl upon the earth, And then the second angel pours out his bowl, and the third angel in verse 4, and it says in verse 5, And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Now, that may sound harsh to you, but there is a sense that all of us are waiting, is there not, for all of those unpunished evils, all the wickedness in this life where men have died and not faced the judgment they really deserve. There is a sense in which when you're in heaven and you see the righteousness of God, you will praise God for his rightly dealing with those who have rejected him, and in particular those who have oppressed his saints. Our Lord takes that very seriously, and men will praise God for it in heaven. Now, we may have a little trouble on this side uh, thinking those thoughts. Others of us don't have any troubles at all. We just go to the imprecatory psalms and we pray them about our enemies. But the reality is when we get to heaven and we see God as he is, we will rejoice that he is righteous in his judgment as he is holy and glorious. Beauty. Uh, you see over and over the, 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 uh, the references to the, the beauty of God. And, and in Revelation chapter 21, uh, verses 8 through 10, it talks about the bride as the bride comes down. Now, folks... I think in bride terms, nobody, I've never heard anybody say of a bride, mm, mm, you know, she really needs some work. Brides are beautiful, aren't they? 
Brides are beautiful. And the, the bride, as it comes down and, and is joined in this marriage ceremony, it is beautiful. And so the description of heaven with all of these uh, gems and gold and whatever is a picture of the beauty. But that beauty is a reflection of God's beauty. It is the appropriate thing for God's place. Immortality. You remember 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17 talks about God immortal. God cannot die. He has always been. And so when you get, when we get to heaven, there will be, Revelation 21, 4, no death. Revelation 22, verse 2, the tree of life. So there will be in heaven an immortality that we enter into. There is light. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, John 8, 12, and obviously in Revelation 21, 23, light comes. He is the lamp, as it were, of heaven. And the last one is joy. Heaven is going to be a joyous place. Now, I, I picked a text. There, there are texts in Isaiah that speak about the celebration and the joy uh, of, uh, that will be ours in eternity. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11, it talks about the blessed God. But I remember my professor in seminary pointing out that that word means also happy. And I, I did a message on the attributes of God on that, the happiness of God. God delights in us. He takes great pleasure and great joy in what he does. And heaven is going to be a joyous, happy uh, place because it is a reflection of God. So what will we be doing in heaven? Well, if you look, and that's where I kind of spread out over all of Revelation and not just 21 and 22, because you see these heavenly scenes, but we'll be singing We'll be singing a new song. I thought about that this morning, and I thought, I wonder what the song leader in heaven's going to do when he introduces that new song. We're probably going to be perfect, and we won't have as much trouble with new songs there as we do here. But it'll be a new song. And and then there is the song of Moses in, in chapter 15 and verse 3. Interesting, isn't it, how you tie the new in with the old, because there is that recollection and remembrance, and people see the salvation of God in a sense, in a continuity, and they see the Song of Moses, therefore, as a reflection and a remembrance that saints of today can remember as well. Prayers. Very, very interesting to me. Um, I see some, for instance, where the saints in, in uh, chapter uh, 7, verses 9 through 11, these are the martyrs who are, who are in effect, they don't, the word prayer isn't used, but they say, how long before you deal with, with these people? Uh, that really is a prayer. But the way in which prayer is described, it, it, it comes across as something which God has stored up. So look with me for a minute. Uh, at, at a couple of those prayer texts. Um, if you look at uh, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add it 
to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. It's like, remember there's a, there's a, a text that says that he has gathered, c- collected all of our tears in a bottle and, and that he's going to, to deal with that. He doesn't, he doesn't overlook any of our suffering. But there's also a sense in which we, we are very momentary. We're very McDonald's in, in our thinking about prayer. And that is we want to sort of roll up to the window of heaven, you know, roll down our window, give, a, give our order, and then wait for God to deliver. What I see is that heaven is going to be the answer to a whole lot of prayers that were not answered earlier. And I know people have said, well, one of God's answers is wait. Well, it really is in the sense that some of our prayers may wait in terms of their answer. But the description is that God has saved those up and they go up as incense before God. He is ever mindful of the prayers of his saints from all of history and that at some point those prayers are now going to be answered in heaven. Serve, uh, worship and praise. You see, of course, a lot of that all the way through Revelation. One of the things that fascinated me was several times God is worshipped as the creator. Yeah, and that's interesting because, of course, there will be the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And our Lord Jesus, of course, is worshipped as the redeemer, the one who has brought about uh, salvation for his people. Much worship much praise being offered by all of heaven, not just saints, but living creatures and elders and and all the whole group. Service in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3. We will be serving. Remember our Lord Jesus speaks of himself as the one who will, in effect, seat his disciples and he will serve them at the table I think that we're inclined to think that serving ought to stop when we get to heaven. That's the the part that we pay on earth so we can do something else in heaven. But if Jesus is right, and he surely is, that we have an inverted table and that greatness is actually in serving, then the reward for us in heaven is to serve. It is him giving us the greater part, the greater role. There is also the element of ruling, which I would take it as an aspect of our uh, service, where we will reign with him. And then I make the observation um, that heaven and what they do is a lot like what we do every Sunday. Is it not? Or let's put it this way. It ought, what we do on Sunday ought to be a lot like what we do in heaven. You might even call Sunday a rehearsal. Even the element of ruling, there is a sense in which, is there not, when we come together in the meeting of the church, that there are those men who God is going to lead to direct us, to guide us in worship of him. So all of these elements, singing, prayer, worship, service, all of those elements are here. And we ought to be grateful. We ought to be looking forward to church just like we ought to be looking forward to heaven. And the the better it gets here, 
the more we know it's going to be even greater when we, when we get to heaven. What does Revelation confirm to us about heaven? Well, it certainly confirms that heaven is the place where God dwells with his people. Verse 3 of, of uh, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Heaven is the place where God is with his people. It is the place where we will be with him. More than streets of gold, more than... uh, uh, the, uh, these other beautiful elements that we see of the description of heaven. It is the beauty of God and the presence of God that is our great joy and delight. So what are some of the unique things, uh, contributions that, that uh, Revelation makes? It's really clear heaven does come down. And you have this kind of earthly uh, picture where I think we think of heaven mainly as us going up. And certainly that's true when we die and we go up and, and the rapture when it's described in First Thessalonians 4. But here it's described as heaven coming down and God having his presence on this new, renewed, uh, new heaven and new earth. Heaven comes down. In Revelation 2, the, the preface to this is that it is addressed to churches. So this is really specifically aimed at those who are churches and, and, and there are specific things that God is looking at in his church that he expects them to do, to be faithful to sound doctrine, to correct those who are in error, to, to uh, correct and, and avoid immorality, and all of that is described here. And he says, I know your deeds. He also says, be careful lest I remove your lampstand. What a a terrible thought. When you think about these seven churches of Asia, I'm not sure there's a lamp there to speak of, as there was in those days. But the question is, how's our lamp doing? How is our lamp burning? Uh, We ought to be faithful to our Lord Jesus. Now, suffering, martyrdom, and heaven. And I guess what I see is I'm putting suffering and martyrdom on this side and I'm putting heaven on this side. Whatever you want to think about what the future holds, when I read the book of Revelation, I see a lot of suffering on the part of saints. And the scripture says that he even allows the beast to overcome the saints and to kill them. You see the martyrs crying out for justice. I do not see, in in my way of viewing things, I do not see that Christians are promised an escape hatch from the wrath of men. I see Christians promised an escape from the wrath of God. And you can play that out in, in your eschatological scheme as you like. But it seems to me that what he's saying here is he is talking to people who are going to have hard times. Those churches that he addressed already were having hard times, and some of them were going to have more difficult times. And the church, as we move toward the tribulation period, that is going to be hard, hard times. And many are going to be martyred for their faith. What better thing to be saying to those in the midst of all of the suffering of saints. Now, there's the suffering of that God pours out on the unbelievers as well. But the suffering of saints, to hold out the joy of heaven 
Isn't that meant to give them comfort and courage and endurance and perseverance? So that they know, as Paul did from his experience, as described in 2 Corinthians 12, to be absent from the body, I know that's not 2 Corinthians 12, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So anyway, there is that, that great blend of suffering, martyrdom, and heaven because heaven is the reward for those who persevere great suffering. Now, I don't, I, I, I say Revelation 13, but I, I get the impression as I read through the whole book of Revelation, do you not see a coming day when there is one world government? I, I, man, as I was reading through there, I'm saying to myself, whoa. And, and it's a little spooky, isn't it, to watch the news and to see that movement toward this, this whole one world setup. And I guess what I would, I, I don't know whether to be upset or excited. I guess I'm both. You know, as an American, I'm upset. As a Christian, I'm saying, bring it on. You know, he's just, it's just, the Lord's just preparing the way. But I see that rather clearly, that there is a movement toward one world government, and I see a movement toward opposition to Israel. And those things seem to be, in my opinion, in the making. Maybe they've happened before. Maybe they'll happen again. But it, it looks to me, as I read Revelation, that part doesn't sound foreign to me anymore as it used to. Satan's defeat and judgment. What a great description of Satan's destruction that we see in Revelation 12 and particularly in Revelation chapter 20. So where does all this go? Well, Revelation chapter 22 verse 17 says, come. <laughs> it says, those who want a drink of that living water, come. There's a message of salvation offered in the book of Revelation. Heaven is for those who will trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Come. Buy gold. That's what he says in Revelation 3.18. Sounds like those conservative news shows, doesn't it? The commercials, buy gold. Well, I'm not sure that you want to buy it from them. Some of those guys are probably crooks. But you know, there's a sense in which if the streets of heaven are, are paved with gold, you know, then the wood, hay, and stubble, we know. We're not taking a sack of ashes with us to heaven. So there is a sense in which we ought to buy that which lasts. And, of course, it's not physical gold now that we're talking about. But we ought to be, in effect, laying up treasures in heaven, preparing with those things that will last forever. And as Luke 16 says, one of them is those people who have come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul makes a big point of that in his writings as well. Be ready. The time is near. When you read in, in Revelation, uh, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 12, God says to Daniel, seal up that book. Daniel, you're going to die. A lot of time's going to pass. And, and then eventually you'll be resurrected and these things are going to happen. It's not what you read at the end of the book of Revelation. He says, don't seal the book because the time is near. That ought to be a message to us that the coming of our Lord Jesus could be very, very near. And as you see in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, that means we ought to be active and faithful, not passive, sitting back, and as we see these things coming off, cheering, checking off on our list, the next set of terrible things that's going to happen before our Lord comes again. We ought to be actively out there proclaiming Christ, living him before a lost world. Persevere. Over and over you see that word perseverance. But I guess if I were to say anything to myself and to you, it would be this. 
Let's pray that God would give us an appetite for heaven. An appetite for heaven. Isn't that what, in in the prayer uh, in Matthew chapter 6, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an interesting expression. Does it mean, I pray that your will will be done now on earth? I think so. But heaven is the time when heaven comes down to earth and God's will will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Those ought to be wonderful thoughts. Those ought to be things that we, in a sense, daydream about. What it's going to be like then. Now, some of you younger folks, it's going to be harder. For some of us who are older, we're saying, bring it on. This is great news. It's a great place. And I pray that through faith in Jesus, you're going to be there. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the glories of heaven, that you will not only be there, but heaven will be just like you. Help us to look forward to that. And help us in this life, perhaps as as persecution grows in our own day, that we would endure and persevere and live out the life of the Lord Jesus before an unsaved world. In his name we pray. Amen.